so excited. I'm so scared. There's like an 80% chance I'll cry. That's fine. And also, okay, follow-up question. What's the policy on cursing? Oh, you're allowed to curse. Okay. And I'm gonna try not to, but I'm you can't I'm chaos. Crying's allowed. I might cry if you cry, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Out of control. It's just a podcast episode of two girls crying. <laughs> Hey, Boo fam. Welcome to Peking. This is Jess, your host, and hopefully one of your best friends at this point. We're in season two. I feel like I've earned it. I'm so happy you're back to see what we have in store for this season. It's going to get deeper. It's going to get weirder. You already know what it is, though. It's it's Peking. It's about low moments in life that are opportunities to grow. We try to do a little bit of self-help, but a lot of laughing along the way. We don't take ourselves too seriously, and... We got more of that in store for you this season on Peaking. Hi, booze. Welcome back. I'm going to keep my intro as short and sweet as I possibly can. And I know I've said that before and then I've talked for 10 minutes, but that's not happening this time because first of all, I want to just be done editing this episode. And second of all, we have a really long one and a really great one this time. I asked you guys on Instagram if you'd be okay with episodes that are over an hour, basically, and the overwhelming response was yes, that you actually love when podcasts are longer because you just let them play and do your thing, and I'm really happy to hear that because it is difficult to keep these conversations short sometimes. There's so much to talk about, and in this episode, I'm actually catching up with an old friend. We have known each other since, I think, the first grade. We were like six years old when we met. We went to the same school growing up, graduated from the same high school class, and um, we were always friendly and kind of in the same friend groups. I would have considered her a friend at the time, but I will say that the two of us weren't as close one-on-one as I think we maybe should have been, and she and I kind of talked about that when we caught up this week, which was really special. We have a ton in common. We always did kind of musicals and theater together. Um, We were definitely kind of both like class clowns, but we were also hardworking students and kind of nerdy and like smart and creative. This sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but really I'm tooting hers because I really admire her. I really respect her. I think that she's hilarious and smart and endearing and has so much talent to offer the world. And I've always thought that about her. And after high school, we kind of stayed less in touch as, you know, as happens. But I kept my eye on on this little gem of a person, um, mostly because social media lets you do that, but also because I just do think she's really special. And she did a lot of cool things in my eyes after high school. She traveled to Italy for a year, took a gap year and became an au pair and lived there and then came back and went to college at NYU Tisch where she studied acting, then pursued acting in New York for a long time. And as somebody who kind of took the more traditional path after high school, going straight to college and then starting working in the corporate world straight after that, I viewed her journey as so cool and so different and something I was almost jealous of, but at the same time I knew must have been so challenging and so exhausting and full of its ups and downs. And because we weren't that close, I couldn't really ever get the answers to that. I mean, I could have, I guess, but you know, people are awkward and I didn't know how to reach out. And lo and behold, this many years later, we're like 
12 years since we graduated. Is that real? Wow. Oh my God. More than that? No, it's more. Wait, how old am I? 30? When do you graduate? Yeah, 12 years. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, we've been kind of interacting more online and I've been seeing what she's been up to and she's been seeing what I've been up to and it's reconnected us just in the DMs, you know, in, in Instagram messages. We've chatted a little here and there and I decided to reach out to her for this episode because I really selfishly wanted to get to know more about her story because I, th- I thought it would be really informative to what I'm going through right now in my career trajectory and trying to figure out how you balance what you're passionate about and what brings you joy with, you know, what you spend your life working on and what brings you stability and financial stability and also what brings you fulfillment and just how do you figure out that puzzle? I still don't know. I don't know if I'll ever fully know, but she has done a lot of the work over the last 12 years and a lot of the kind of testing and failing and testing again and getting better the next time. And it's really inspirational to me. And I really wanted to just know more about it. And she was so gracious to spend like two hours chatting with me. I feel like we could have talked for five hours. I'm really um, kind of humbled that she was willing to come onto the podcast and that this is what kind of reunited us and brought us back together to have a deeper conversation than we probably ever have, because I don't think we were capable of this level of introspection at the age of 15, 16, 17. Um, Without further ado, actually, no, sorry. Before I even tell you who it is, quick, quick uh, pivot, because I did want to tell you one other thing, quick announcement. I'm doing a book club. It's going to be about the book Body Talk by Katie Storino, and I invite all of you to join me. So I posted about it on Instagram. I will do that again next week just to make sure that everybody who wants to be a part of this can be. But basically the premise is I'd love for you all to buy a copy of that book. You can also get the audio book, although I think a lot of the value of this one is in the imagery and the photos and the workshop pages that come within the physical copy itself. Um, But it's all about body image and body positivity and self-acceptance. And it's one of the better write-ups on that that I've ever seen and really digestible and fun to read as well. But I also teared up and I also felt things and it was, you know, quite quite a roller coaster. And so I wanted to see if we could gather some members of the Boo fam to have a few virtual book clubs around this book, probably in early March. I Once I have a list of everybody that's interested, we'll send out a doodle poll and figure out scheduling. We'll probably do two different sessions so that people, you know, have more of an opportunity to join and also so that we don't have 20 people talking over each other in one session. And then my ideal vision with this is that I would be able to turn some of the audio clips from our book club discussion into an episode for Peking where... It'll probably be a Just Thoughts episode where I'll kind of narrate throughout and then um, bring in discussion points that I had with the Boo fam about different parts of this book and just the overall peaking journey that is accepting oneself, accepting one's body, accepting the way one looks. It's not only body image. It can be kind of anything related to your physical acceptance of yourself and self-image physically. Um, So just wanted to make sure to talk about that on the podcast itself because most of the conversation around planning this has gone on on Instagram 
please let me know. If you're interested, if you're not on Instagram, but you're hearing this and you're interested, you can email me at peakingpodcast at gmail.com and I will make sure to include you in the planning. All right, now back to my guest for the episode. Without further ado, her name is Caroline Winkler. And that's actually like a good segue into, wait, one more thing to say. We didn't really intro this episode while we were on the phone together. We just started talking about God knows what, and I never really got to do the official, hi, Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. So what you just heard was that there was a segue opportunity. It wasn't a segue. To you guys, it's not a segue. Um, this is this is editing Jess, by the way. I'm just letting you know that I know that the intro was a bit sloppy, but you're going to get into it and you're not even going to remember that it happened. Okay, that's all. Let's get into the conversation with Caroline. What I kind of want to ask you more about, because Mm -hmm. I feel like it's funny that you say looking at me, you would think of me as such an independent person because like that's what I would think looking at you, Mm. especially because kind of the last that we were like really closely in in each other's lives was like high school and and the kind of couple years after that maybe and you like moving to Italy and then going to New York and pursuing acting and like to me that's independence at its finest that's like somebody who's like rejecting the traditional path that they've been put on and like going for what feels right for them so I'd be really curious to hear just kind of what the challenges were versus what the highlights were of making that decision at that time In a way, I guess being an au pair and moving to Italy at 17, I just wanted to get away. I was so overwhelmed by our high school experience. I was like so depleted by it and over it and not even my own, but like watching my sister go through the like applying to college thing. And I was just like, this is all such nonsense. And I don't like value most of this, which is a really probably shitty privileged thing for me to say because I got such a lovely high school opportunity and college opportunity that I was fortunate to have and like just I just couldn't get down with the values of it it drove me crazy and I just wanted to get away what values would you call out just like the over competitiveness the ambition uh that everything is about scores and college names and um angling for who can pay for the best SAT tutor and mm-hmm. I was just like I don't I don't even like people who are good at this stuff even though I guess I was a pretty good student but and all of our friends were like good students but I just didn't something about it just didn't line up like already I was just like this isn't actually even what I consider intelligence in life yeah um And I don't know, even like watching my sister. So Elizabeth, my older sister went to Princeton, one of of the brightest people I know. And I was just like, yeah, but it's still so stupid. Like she's not smart because she went to Princeton. And the whole process of that was so kind of random. Like there were, I don't, I don't know exactly how to describe it. I just, it was so intense in our area in DC and at our school, which we went to for 11 years, and I was just depleted by it. I just felt like I don't really tout this as the ultimate. Did your parents understand that decision at the time or support it? Or like, was that a challenge at all? What did that yeah. look like, I guess? 
they well I didn't I don't think I articulated any of that to them really or I don't remember doing that at the time yeah what I do remember is that I originally asked to go to Rwanda <laughs> and do you remember someone came and gave a presentation at our school about like sponsoring trips to Rwanda and I was like me I'll go <laughs> and then they were like false you won't and um and then I was like okay how about Italy they were like fine <laughs> yeah went went to Italy to be an au pair. A lot of these Italian families just wanted someone to come and, and teach English to their kids. And I big, like high level takeaway of the whole year was that it sounded like so cool and romantic and awesome to everybody. And it was a super rewarding experience in so many ways. And it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult year. Um, I was so, so alone, so isolated. First started with one family for the first three months I was there. I don't think they'll be listening to this, but they were just pretty much pretty abusive as far as employers. Um, the dad was like a sexual predator and the mom would just like tell me how terrible I was all the time. I would get no time off. They controlled like when I could go out or who I could see. and. Um, they didn't, they refused to pay me for like the first month that I was there. So I had like no means to do or facilitate anything for myself. Wow. It was, I, I don't even know how I stayed there that long. I had no concept of how to advocate for myself then no concept of like self-respect or what I deserved to be <clears throat> treated as. Um, I would like go like onto the computer in the middle of the night and like tried to find another family um, and packed my bags, told them I was leaving and they like, wouldn't take me to the train station. They wouldn't take me to the airport. I like called a taxi and then I had to pay like the taxi driver to help me carry my suitcases up like flights of stairs to the, get to the train. And, wow. and I ended up in Parma with a, the most wonderful family. They have visited me multiple times since I've seen them multiple times since their kids follow me on Instagram. Like they're going to be invited to my wedding. What wedding? What am I saying? <laughs> Ever. You know what I mean? I say that phrase all the time. I'm like, yeah. that's how I feel about my therapist. I always say she's going to be in my wedding. And then I'm like, what wedding? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, yeah. And they were like the love, like antithesis, the most unnecessarily lovely people you could meet, Yeah, but yeah. was still there in a, um, there was no other like au pair system or organization in the area there, which is usually how au pairs in foreign countries connect and have some uh, social network. Um, and so I was just there alone and they did a really kind job of trying to connect me with people, but it was like the beginning of my very undiagnosed depression, incredibly lonely, incredibly codependent, um, very unable to be well on my own. And um, I was extremely depressed with very lovely people at the end, but just, I was pretty depressed. Yeah. Did you like, what, did you have any outlets for that at the time? Like, what would you do to, whether it was just temporarily make yourself feel better or express those types of feelings to someone or even for yourself to process? Like, did you have any rituals or activities or outlets um, or was it just kind of like never ending cycle? Mm. It was, yeah, I felt like I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of good tools then. Um, I feel like if anything, now I pride myself on having been through like enough 
I feel like kind of a pro at ha- handling depression and sadness and breakups and all that stuff. Now I feel like I can always do it and it comes, it happens. And then, uh, that was really the beginning, I guess. I didn't have a lot. I would journal. Um, but you know, even the few friends I did have, it was like not my native tongue and it was hard to express. And you're talking to other people who aren't feeling that loneliness and aren't feeling that emptiness. So they can listen, but there's only so much they can listen. And, um, I feel like I didn't have a lot of outlets. I was still like deep into an eating disorder. That was probably my outlet. And, um, did you think about leaving? I didn't, I didn't, I really stick with stuff. Um, my mom has described me as being, uh, I don't know. I I can endure to a fault. Mm. She pointed that out to me actually with my eating disorder, um, with my recent relationship. And I do think it's kind of a theme. Like I'll just, I don't know if it's like a Catholic thing that Mm. you're just like, I'll stick through the bad stuff. Like I'll never, almost never quit it. And one of the values that I've developed since then is like, I value quitting. Quitting the right things is really important to me now. Oh my God. I just got goosebumps. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just really, yeah, I agree. I relate to that. I think it has to do with the codependence actually. I think that that's like a big element in when people like stick with things, even when they're bad and like taking pride to the point where you almost take pride in like, it's bad right now, but I'm sticking with it anyway, because I believe in like what it could be. And totally that's kind of what you tell yourself anyway. So yeah. Living for the future and, and Mm -hmm. ignoring the present for the future. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so when you did come back from Mm -hmm. Italy, did you, you already knew that you were going to be going to school in New York when you got back, right? Yeah. I had just, I like got in after, you know, in high school and then just deferred. Yeah. Um, so I knew I was going there. Yeah. Going there for acting, which was acting was a hundred percent my identity. Mm-hmm. What a big mistake. Mm-hmm. I, I no longer have identities, <laughs> but yeah, I think pretty much anyone who knew me for most of my life, like knew me, I, I would, I would think as like, oh yeah, she's the actor one. She's the one who wants to do acting. And that's the acting thing. Mm-hmm. Since I was 12, I think I told my diary, I'm going to be an actor. And, and you stuck to it. I stuck to it to a fault. <laughs> well, okay. So how did kind of the depression that you were feeling in Italy translate once you got back and started school? And I, you know, like walk me through the whole trying to be an actor in New York, which I'm sure is loaded. And I know you did for many years. Yeah. So I was in New York for a total of eight years and pursuing acting that whole time. Um, it was tough. I, I think everyone can picture probably the ways that it's tough. It's an incredibly oversaturated career. There's not nearly enough jobs for the number of people in it. I think everyone knows that. And what is hard is not so much like knowing that it's tough everyone goes in knowing that it's tough and the odds are tough and it's not hard to be poor and it's not hard to work five jobs and it's not hard to eat shit and take bad roles and bad projects and work for free because that's the only option it was like hard to work so devotedly at something that had 
zero promise in the future, just like total blind faith, blind faith in something that most likely would never happen. But the only way to make it happen was to completely ignore those odds. And at first I was okay with that because I always thought like, oh, it takes grit and I have grit. I'll, I don't care. I love to eat shit. I'll do it all day. And then eventually my experience was that my life became very fulfillment poor, um, working all the time. So you don't have time to put towards, you know, you don't have hobbies really. And you don't even have passions anymore because your whole life is towards this passion. So you don't have like outside passions. Your outside stuff is waitressing and bartending and babysitting and trying to make some money to pay rent. And um, just all the joy kind of was sucked out for me. I'm being so abstract and all over the place right now. No, uh, no. Um, that is like what you just pointed out is something that I think about a lot because I'm at this con- constant crossroads decision point, something of like, do I want to pursue things I'm more passionate about for my career mm-hmm. or will turning my passions into my career kill them, ruin them? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I feel like I hear that a lot from people who choose that life, whether it works out for them or not. I don't know. But like when what you love to do becomes so grueling and demanding and like ultimately you want it to be the way that you also like support your life and pay your bills. And so it needs to be like money generating and it needs to be stable and it needs to be, I don't know, it needs to eventually get there, I guess. Um, It can ruin like the joy that you get from it. Right. Did you feel from these like odd jobs that, okay, there's two sides. There's like the jobs that you had to pay rent and so on. And then there was acting work, which I imagine sometimes was you got paid and sometimes you didn't. Mm-hmm. But did you enjoy the acting work that you were doing or did it change over time how much you enjoyed it? That's a good question. Yeah, I would say in the beginning, it was like totally exhilarating and stuff still. Um, oh, you said so many good things I want to respond to. But yes, the overall trajectory. Okay, so especially in acting, um, a you can work for decades as like a pretty successful, respected actor and do unpaid jobs. That continues for decades uh, because they can, because there are so many ways to replace you and there's so many projects and it's art. And, you know, I think it's the same with so many artistic careers. You can work for free for a very long time and um, you you know, you're building your portfolio, you're building your reel and your resume. So you'll take any project who will have you. You're at the whims of writers and directors and casting directors and producers. And you are bottom, actors are, I will say bottom of the totem pole until they're some kind of name, you know, they're just at the whim of everyone else. So you'll, I at least would basically do any projects that would have me, um, which means I did mostly projects that I then didn't like or didn't believe in or didn't think were funny or fun or worthwhile and then started to not love the work and a hundred percent what you said like pursued this once passion in such a way that it killed it and I was unhappy in acting for a while 
for a few years really. And when I knew I had to quit, I had like booked a commercial and that's supposed to be like the trophy that you're going for, you know, like that, that's the win. You're doing it all. Really, you're doing, they say you've done your job if you even get a call back because the rest is out of your control. If you get a call back, you did your acting job correctly. Um, you book the job, that's what it's about. And I was like at this shoot for a like small Coke commercial. It was an overnight shoot. And I, for all intents and purposes, should have been over the moon about it. Like that's what it's all about. And the whole time I just wanted to go home. Mm. And I was like, man, if I don't even want to do this, then I just don't like this thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many things like, I really don't feel regrets about anything. I, I had to pursue acting in order to know that it wouldn't make me happy, at least the way I did it. And like the enormous thing that I take from that now is that I will never, ever pursue a passion the same way that I did. Like, I think Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer of Eat, Pray, Love, Mm -hmm. (laughs) talks about like the best way to pursue an art is to not rely on it for money. Mm. And as soon as you do, you are presumably perverting that art um, for the requirements of whoever's willing to pay you for it. Mm-hmm. You're probably perverting it away from the thing that you believe in, the thing that you got into it for. And then you're, you know, selling out on something that is like your reason for living. What it, it it's it's so backwards. Um so now like there are things I'm passionate about. I will no longer wrap my identity around them and the moment they stop being fun, I stop. I won't do it. And that to me is like the way to preserve it. And then having any success, quote unquote, success from that is just like an added bonus, but I'm only going to do it because I like doing it. And that's it. That's the end of the sentence, basically. Yeah. So at what point, okay, you talked about that Coke commercial and like, just feeling like, wow, if I don't like this, then I don't like what I'm doing anymore because this was supposed to be like the prize at the end kind of. Yeah. So then what did it look like to kind of like change course at that point? Mm -hmm. It was so hard. It was, I mean, it was, it was a hundred percent my identity and my purpose for living. Like I remember watching my sister go through different career, um, identity crises and being like what should I do what should I do what should I do and just even when I was younger being like man I'm so glad I never had to deal with that I always knew what I wanted to do I never had to like have that crisis and then I was way older having that crisis and there was nothing that came close it was like I felt very certain that I would whatever career I chose it would not be a passion I was no longer going to pursue a passion um And, uh, I wanted stability. I wanted a salary. I wanted something safe and moderately, like reasonably tolerable Mm -hmm. that I could do during the day and clock out and then enjoy my life in the evening. And on the weekend, that was really what I wanted. How did you get to the point where you established that those were the things that you wanted? Because they're very different from the things you had before and the things that you were pursuing before, Yeah, which I can understand when you realize, oh, this isn't working anymore. So I want something different. And maybe I even want the opposite of this, but like, I can also imagine that it's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow 
that like, you're like, I was pursuing this kind of like exciting life around my passion. And now I want to get equally excited about pursuing stability. Does that ring true at all? Yeah. I mean, it was, I didn't expect to be excited about it at all. Mm. It was just like, I mean, I, it, it was, I felt so beat down. Like I just felt like I failed. I, I completely failed. Um, whatever, whether it requires luck or it's a hard career or like, I, I mean, maybe those things are true, but it doesn't change the fact that I totally failed. And, um, it felt like a death of something in a way. Mm. And my, the things that I looked for in my next career were, yeah, definitely a, just a direct reaction to where I'd come from. I just felt like pursuing, I, I don't stand by this anymore, but at the time, of course, I was just like pursuing passion. is isn't worth it. It doesn't make me happy. It never will. I just want stability and safety. And I was tired. I was just exhausted. Um, I wanted to do something that I didn't really have to care about, which I found that thing and it didn't last me very long. Like I, I got tired of it, obviously, pretty quickly. No, duh. But um, I don't know. There, it, it didn't feel like there was like, I didn't sit down and like calculate what, it, what I wanted to look for next in a career. That's just, that was the only thing I could tolerate. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does make sense. I don't know if there's, I don't know if I'm grasping at straws and trying to make meaning out of something that's just not. Do it. But I think it's interesting that you talked about after high school, like after our mm. growing up and the school that we went to and everything, um, being beat down and exhausted and like wanting to reject that and that being a motivating factor in like your choice to go to Italy and spend that time like doing something totally different. And then, and then now again, like in a different way, it's like, okay, I tried, I've done now this, like pursuing my passion for eight years and I feel tired and beat down. And now let's go almost back, but not to like, wow, to something just wow. different, like being so beat down that you want to flip it on its, on its head, you know, you're my therapist now. <laughs> you, <laughs> we're, we're going to do this weekly now. <laughs> um, yes. Yep. Yeah. Same, totally the same pattern, like stick with something way too hard for way too long in a completely unsustainable way, burn the fuck out and um instead of trying to make it livable and moderate and long term um and then run away mm-hmm. yeah yeah i've done it too i've done it too mm-hmm. in smaller smaller shorter chapters almost um where i'm like yeah this isn't working i think i don't know like anyway. what what are you what are you thinking of well i feel like with my career I was very much like on the traditional career trajectory that like our, where we come from and the education that we have and so on and so forth, like prepped us for and set us up for. Mm -hmm. And every so often, honestly, I I think definitely like a couple times a year, but sometimes in smaller ways, more often than that, 
but definitely like twice a year, I would have these like huge moments of, of like, what the fuck am I doing? And like, Mm -hmm. why am I doing this? And like, there's, this doesn't fulfill me at all. This isn't like who I am. This doesn't like align with my values and the things that I care about. And I'd have these like big moments of panic. And I think like, I didn't know how to address those things. I knew what like my wildest dreams were for like what I would do instead. Or I knew at least like the realm in which they existed, but it didn't feel like approachable or tangible to get those things or realistic to get those things. And I had been realistic for a really long time. And so it was like, okay, I'm feeling this way. So what change can I make? Clearly something has to change. And I'm not going to do the most unrealistic change of like dropping everything and like trying to create a sitcom about myself. or something. <laughs> so like, like, what am I going to do? So I, within the constructs that I had been playing in would make a change. Like I'd change jobs yeah, or I'd try to get a promotion or I'd try to be on a different team or a different project. Like within that world, I'd try to make a change and it would help for a little bit because then I'd at least be Mm. doing something new or be making Mm. more money. And I could like use that as a excuse or a scapegoat or something for like, okay, I, I made a change. I feel a little bit better. Like this is, this is working. And then like six months would go by a year would go by whatever. And I'd feel this same like pit of my stomach. I can't describe it, but I feel like you probably out of anyone, like understand it, like a visceral, like looking around myself, what the fuck am I doing? Um, Mm -hmm. And that all like led to me leaving my job last year and just completely quitting. Like it all built up and built up and built up until I got to a kind of plateau in the working world where I had reached like a certain level and a certain status at the types of companies that I was working at. And I thought that that's what I had been working towards and wanting the whole time. And that once I got there, it would all like make sense. Oh man. And I got there and like looked around and was like, why have I been like killing myself for the last eight years to get to this? Like yeah. what, what, this is all this is just like the same conference calls and emails and bullshit upon bullshit upon bullshit like this wasn't the payoff wasn't there at the end of like this road that this ladder I had been climbing yeah and it didn't make sense I had this realization of like okay every time I've felt this way I've made a small change within this context so now I need to make a much bigger change and it feels like that change is quitting if I do return to that type of world like having a different relationship with it and having side hustles on, you know, and having things that keep my passions alive on the side. And like, that's, I guess the next place I want to go with you and like get a better understanding of how you reach the point where you're at now. And I only know it from like an outsider looking in perspective, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like you left New York and you left acting, or did you stay in New York a little while longer? I don't really know, but you started to work kind of like a regular nine to five job. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say you just describing like working in that system. It just like, Oh, I can feel it in my chest. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think so many people relate to that trap. The great trick of life. You do this next thing and then you'll be happy. And then this next thing and this next thing and this next milestone, you'll be happy at the end. Mm-hmm. Big trick. But um, um, Yeah. So I, 
did a lot of crying on my sister's couch. What am I going to do? And my, one of my like comedy partners at the time was also a software engineer at Venmo. And we would go and like Venmo had these like crazy, you know, new age tech offices. And we would go and like rehearse at the Venmo office sometimes. And so I was exposed to like the office and the culture and the world and the people. And she was so cool and artistic and smart. And I was like, F, like if I could learn, if I could do some like software development or coding, if I could do it, I think I like this world. I think I could tolerate this world. And um, so I went to like a boot camp, they call it, with like a super condensed five month, like 40 hour a week, something school to learn to code. And um, it was very difficult for me. I would not say that it came naturally to me, but I forced my way through it. I was curious about that. Like when I, when I heard that you were doing coding, I was like, that's awesome. And I, I'm like familiar with those types of boot camps and stuff. My sister has done one. And okay. But then I was just like, her? I wonder how that's going for her. <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder, obviously, like, I know that you are, I see you as a very intelligent person. So it's nothing to do with like your, your smarts, your intelligence, your capability. It's more just like, oh, coding though. Oh, (laughs) oh my God. uh, Everyone would just be like, oh, so you think you're passionate about that? And I was like, no, I know I'm not passionate. You guys don't seem to get it. I'm doing it because I'm not passionate about it. It's a job. Y'all get jobs. I did my passion. It's done. It's dead. Passion is dead. Passion's dead, y'all. But um, forced myself through that. Super. Di- so it was very difficult for me. I think that was the first time that I had panic attacks. Really? You didn't throughout all of your journey until then? No, I, I really never did. I, I never did. I think I'm pretty fortunate for that. I feel like they're rampant these days, but no, it wasn't until I was in coding school. Wow. Yeah. That, that really hits me in like a deep place. I don't, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like, I mean, I've had panic attacks and they've been a result of compound stress from career and personal life. But like, as somebody who still a little bit romanticizes the passion side of this conversation, and I know we're not done and like, you're going to probably get back around to it. I see where we're going, but like, I feel like I'm like, oh my God, like pursuing your passion in that like stressful world that you described and like not having the stability financially, not having the like structure in your day-to-day life, like not knowing where kind of like money's going to come in from or what jobs you're going to get and whatever all of, all of the stress I know you endured in New York. Like, I'm just amazed that that's not where the panic set in. The panic was like being back in the world that I'm personally more familiar Mm. with, not specifically coding, but just like corporate nine to five life, corporate nine to five, or like learning a new skill. That's like, you know, yeah. I I don't know why I never panicked through in that way like in that clinical way through acting. I don't, I don't know why, but like having panic attacks in coding school was, was very much related to I've, I've stuck a fork in the thing that I've decided I'm doing instead of the thing I want to do. And it Mm. better fucking work. And if it doesn't Mm. work, 
now, now I'm really screwed. Um, like mm. I remember like coming home. Oh, someone's like, some like family birthday dinner or something near the end of my coding school. And I had like a, a public meltdown as an adult person in a restaurant with my family mm. about how I like, couldn't pass, you know, my final tests in code school, whatever. And I, and I was like, and they're like, you can do it. Both. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I have under, I've learned everything I can learn. I don't understand it anymore. Like, I don't understand like the last lessons we've learned. I won't understand it. It's done for me. And little did I know that like, there's so many different ways to go in tech. Like those things I didn't understand. I still don't. And yeah. there's just like a million different ways that you can grow and specialize in tech. So it really didn't matter, but, yeah. um, but I never did master those lessons. Never did. So you were right. And <laughs> I was, yeah, I was right. Let the record show I, that I, I know when I fail, I always call it right. <laughs> and I ended up after that, I was in DC just for school. And all this time, uh, I met, I met my very recent ex in New York. We were together for six years. We broke up maybe seven times and Broke up at one point. I went back to DC um, and we were talking again, but I wasn't ready to be back, back together because we'd had such a tumultuous, you know, it was like breakup number six, I think. And it was psychotic to imagine going back, but, you know, we really loved each other. So we were talking to each other, whatever. And then his father got like a terminal diagnosis and he was moving back home to Ohio to basically help his father die um and be with his parents that was not the correct <laughs> sentence I, loved I meant it. to I, say <laughs> I you need to write some sort of bit on that that's all I, I won't take it from you I'd like to but I'll let I'll I just want to make sure you use it that's <laughs> funny <laughs> I mean it was a terminal situation I don't know <laughs> Yeah. So we were talking and he was moving back there and I knew we shouldn't be together. I wasn't ready to do it. And the words just came out of my mouth anyway. I was just like, do you want us to be together when you go back? And he said, yes. And so we were, and it's good that we were, you know, cause I had, we had so much to learn and work through still. So it's not an accident. Nothing's an accident. You know, we chose it. And um, then I moved to Ohio with him and, um, lived in his parents' house with him when his father passed in the months leading up and in their grieving afterwards. And it was one of uh, the most bizarre, bizarre experiences, I guess. Um, not bizarre in the way that I imagine it is to lose uh, your father, but to watch someone going through like the most unimaginable, intimate, personal, pain and to not really be in it I was just watching it and like I could care for the family and care for my boyfriend and care for these people who I knew were going through so much but then I was just in their house and like I didn't I didn't share it I don't know it was one of like a huge eye-opening learning experience to be so so close to someone else's the height of their pain um for an extended period of time. How did that affect you emotionally? It was in a very, very selfish way that there was really no room for very selfishly. It was a hard time for me because I just moved there. 
I would, I had restarted my life. I didn't know anyone in Ohio and there was really appropriately. So no room for me to like have needs at that time. Like there was a literal death. Um, and it, and I wanted to be there for like my boyfriend so badly and also his way of dealing with the grief, uh, as some people do was to like pull away. He wanted to be alone. He didn't want like someone there with him. And so I kind of just found myself, which was fine, but, um, I kind of just found myself like in a new state with like no job, didn't have a job, um, didn't have friends. I moved there to be with him and I didn't really have him in that time because he was so overwhelmed. And so I was just kind of there and it was, it was scary. It was, it put so much pressure on the relationship for sure. Cause I had nothing else. I had no other fulfillment in my life. I needed the relationship to be good. And it couldn't be because he was going through one of the most terrorizing times in his life. And, uh, I would say it was a bad time. Don't recommend. Yeah. Did you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Like I could see that becoming so cyclical and draining in that cycle of like, okay, this is just my life every day is just, I'm here around this pain. And like, I don't exactly know where I fit into that, but I also am not, I don't really have anywhere else to fit into right now. I had nowhere to go. Yeah. Like how does that, I'm very oriented towards like, where am I heading in like all that, all the parts of my life, you know? Yeah. And so like to be very like, I'm just here. Ooh, okay. <laughs> like I don't know where I'm heading because I can't know where I'm heading because like the context does not allow that for me right now. Right. Like, I don't know. What does that feel like? And then how did it eventually like shift, start to shift? I think that, well, I was very set on like getting a job. I was doing the job hunt and I got a job maybe after like two months of being there, which felt like such relief, obviously. And, um, and then I think, I guess what I did in tandem with like, then working in tech. Okay. So I have some kind of purpose, some kind of path then, um, was that I just created a new path based on what was available, which was, I was there with my boyfriend in his hometown. So I think I, that's when I just started to center on like, so we're going to have a family. Like that's the purpose then is that like, I'm here with you and there's nothing else happening. So I'm going to be here with you and that's the thing. And we're going to be married and we're going to have kids and we're going to do it soon. And that's what makes me being here make sense. Cause otherwise it didn't make fucking sense. Yep. Which it didn't. So I think I, I became like very quickly, super set on moving into like domestic life. And also in that area in Ohio, everyone marries younger and has kids younger. All of our friends had three children and owned a home. And it was, it was uh, particularly weird or kind of surreal moving from New York to Ohio at the age I did. I think I was 28 maybe. And um, that age means such different things in each of those cities. In New York, 28 everyone's still like a frivolous idiot. People are having their first kid maybe at like 41. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say on average in New York, I babysat for every child in New York and all of their parents were like first time parents at 40, I would say. Yeah. And um, so 
in a, a totally different life. Yeah. And then yeah. went to Ohio where I would say it was like a younger than average, like domestic life starting, you know, people are married at 23, 25. They all had like three kids or something by the, by our age. Um, my ex was also a few years older. So his friends were even older. And I, it was like, I, I went from like young twenties life, even though 28 isn't young twenties, it was like living the young, poor twenties life of like a waitress to then being like, I'm working on my credit score because we are going to buy a house and we are going to fund these children that we're going to have. And do it was, it was the wildest night and day difference. And I just, and I dug into it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's know. like what you had to latch on to and what that was I, it. Otherwise. Yeah. yeah I, totally I couldn't be there it. to be like going out on the town and I don't know, maybe yeah. there was a different way I could have lived there, but that, that was the way I, and those things were also really important to me having a family and, um, it had always been super important to me. And I think I just kind of like, I didn't have a lot else. Oh, it's so sad to say, but I didn't have a lot else. So I was like, well, this is the thing all the way then. Okay. And then you guys did move into a house together for a little bit, right? Yeah. Also, I'm curious because I think around the same time is when you got into like one of your big hobbies now, but maybe you were into it before and I just didn't know the DIY home, home design, home decor stuff. Like it seemed to me to be in alignment with around when you were in Ohio. Um, yes, ma'am. So yeah. Like how were those things happening in parallel and like shaping where you got to now? It's exactly what you talk about on your podcast of like something being born of the darkness, basically. So we were living together. We moved into a house and we got a dog and um, we're doing all the domestic things. We just were not making each other. We weren't able to make each other happy. I think, I, I think that's pretty much fair to say both ways. He was very unhappy and I became pretty unhappy, but really loved, really just really loved each other. And I, you know, we fought a lot and I found that it felt like the only option was for me to spend a lot of time alone and wasn't necessarily depressed because at this point I like knew how to sustain myself when I didn't have a lot going on. And that at the time was like doing home projects and creative projects and crafting and stuff that I'd always loved. If like now had all this time for. And I started watching YouTube videos, like DIY YouTube videos. And I watched them for like a year thinking like, I feel like I could do that. I feel like I would actually be good at that or I would enjoy it. But I was so scared and so embarrassed to do it. So it took me like a year of working up to it. And then eventually I was like, wait, why am I embarrassed? I don't have any friends. I literally <laughs> have nothing. Like I can't lose any friends. I can't lose any friends. Like it, it's impossible. I might as well do it. What are people going to still not talk to me? <laughs> and my ex to his credit was like extremely, extremely encouraging. And he, he, some of the like most beautiful gifts he gave me were around like just doing, pursuing the things a, that you're afraid of in life. Like if you're afraid of it, it's probably something you need to look into and, and, and only doing the thing that feels fun like not doing it because, you know, basically the not perverting your passions um, type of thing. He was like a very positive influence in all of that and started making these YouTube videos and felt 
very aware that like, I only wanted to do it if it was enjoyable. Like, yes, it would be more fun if people watched them and liked them, but it really did. I think I really was able to keep it just like fun the whole time I did it. Um, I don't know. When exactly did you start? COVID. COVID, COVID oh, for I'm sure. sure that that played a role. For yeah, sure. I think it was, I did my first like video in September, 2020. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love just the description of you watching the YouTube, these YouTube videos for a year and thinking like I could do that. That's like the most relatable thing to me personally, yeah. because I'll, first of all, I'm obsessed with YouTube. So I'm very happy to now have you to watch on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I'm not usually a DIY YouTube. I, that's not the part of YouTube that I live in, but yeah. for you, I will. Um, but I mean, I feel like I've had such a trajectory with that platform of like, I became obsessed with it in actually when my last relationship was on the decline mm -hmm. and I was spending a lot of time by myself, not because not for the same reasons as you, but I don't know. It just like felt isolating. Um, I started watching a lot of YouTube. It eventually like got me to my, to realize my interest in comedy and like also open up to this world of podcasts. Anyway, I just very much relate to watching that stuff when you're in a moment of like loneliness. And, and then for people like us who kind of have that like performative, like side to ourselves and creative side to ourselves being like, why am I not doing this? Like this person that I'm watching is like fine, but I think I'm funnier. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, and like, I, I could figure this out, but then the embarrassment factor is real of like, if I start posting this on my Instagram, because ultimately if I'm creating something like this, I want people to see it. I mean, yes, it's for me, but and I talked about this in my last podcast episode of like, this podcast is for me, but it's also because I want people to listen to it because I, mm -hmm. there's like an element of wanting that validation or wanting that feedback loop or wanting that. Can I like to brand it as connection to feel better about it, but <laughs> I'm sure that there's an element of like seeking validation. And so you need to post about it. You need to promote it. And like getting over that mental hurdle of I'm going to post about this. And my friend Caroline, who doesn't know me really since high school is going to see it. And like, what's she going to think of that? And like, I think she's really funny and she might not think I'm funny and like, Oh, off, you know, like literally yeah. like, I, of course I understand. Of so. course. <laughs> yeah. I think it's scariest sharing that stuff with the people, you know, for me, the scariest thing was other actors I knew um, there's just like, there's so much, and I embody this too, like so much bitterness after you've been beat down. Um, like then when you see somebody else, like trying a new way to perform, there's a lot, like, I, I was just, I could hear the voices in my head. I was so afraid of what people would say. And then ultimately was just like, it actually doesn't affect my life at all. If people fucking hate this, like, or if they make fun of me, I don't know that's interesting how you said like an alternate way to perform, which I'd agree it is that, but like, yeah. Did you feel like they would not view it as like legit or like, I don't know. Oh, there would be sure what's legit about not, it. Well, but it is legit because like YouTube is a huge platform that like tons of people use for whether it's their creative outlet or 
to generate income. Like it's like a fucking, it's legit. It's a real thing, you know? And but so when you like, start out, you post a video and it gets like two views and yeah. you're like, you know, the, I, there's something so cringy about sharing that and being like, the, the implication is I think I'm good at this. Mm-hmm. And that is something I'm so uncomfortable mm-hmm. saying. Do you still feel that way? I do definitely still feel that way. I feel, I feel less embarrassed about it now because it has some level of traction. So I feel less apologetic about it, which is like, okay, I need to do some growing there. Like I should just be able to bone up, I guess. No, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. I felt apologetic the whole time I was an actor. I was embarrassed to tell people I was an actor. Mm. I was ashamed of it. And because you thought that they'd think, oh, she thinks she's like good enough. She, th- she thinks she's talented. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that I wasn't. And, um, and then at a certain point, it also just felt like I like lost respect for the career or more just myself, the way that I was doing the career. And like, I knew the projects I did were stupid and pointless and unintelligent or not funny. And I just felt like trash. Like you didn't want the follow-up questions of like, oh, what, what can I see you in? And then you're like, uh, yeah, just oh, be like that- nothing, nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't know me. You wouldn't know me. You don't want to see what I've been in. Yep. It's trash. I'm trash. So I feel this way about like the little that I've dabbled in stand up and like, mm. I'll sometimes be like, I think I've enjoyed it. And that was mainly the point was just like to have fun and try something. And it ended up going like well, but that's also not the same as it going well. If I was like trying to make it as a standup, you know, like two very different things to just like do it in a kind of safe space where I invited all of my friends to fill the audience so that I knew that I'd have some laughs versus like doing it and going to open mics and this, that, the other. And so I don't, I don't lean into telling a lot of people about that. Or like, if I do, I definitely caveat it. And I'm like, yeah, I've done it, but whatever. And sometimes I'll be like out with a girlfriend and we'll like meet people. Like we'll like start talking to guys at a bar or something. And we're just like talking, Oh, what do you do? What are your interests or whatever, whatever you talk about with people, nobody asks what your interests are. So I don't know why I said that, but like, (laughs) you know, what do you do? And then, and then I'm like, Oh, I'm actually not working right now. And this, that, the other, and then like a friend who's like super supportive and thinks I'm cooler than I think I am is like, she actually does stand up. And I'm like, why the fuck would you say that? (laughs) And then like, and I'm like, no, I've only done it a couple times or like, uh, and she's like, this, this literally happened. So I'm explaining a specific scenario. She's like, she actually like just did a show at the Lincoln Lodge, which is like a place in Chicago. And she got paid. And I'm like, why are you talking? Like, you need to stop. (laughs) And anyway, I, I just feel that a lot. I understand. And I remember actually posting something about that show I did and the fact that I like didn't know I was going to get paid, but got made $20 at the end of it. And you responded. It was oh, on my yeah, I remember that. And you responded and you were like, no, like you're allowed to be like proud of that. I don't remember what you said, but just the fact that like you responded and got it. I was like, oh, thank God. Because 100%. I think people who aren't in this type of space or have never like had that curiosity or dabbled in it at all or whatever, like honestly, I'm like jealous of how, (laughs) 
how like simply they think about it. And they're just like, oh yeah, my friend Jess is funny and she has done stand up a couple of times. So I'm just going to say that she's a comedian and like, then, then they're done and they don't overthink it. And yeah. for me, I'm like, no, I'm not, I can't, I know people who are actual comedians. I don't get right. to call myself that like, because it's then so- what would they think? It's so funny because like as someone who actually like understands whatever the given art is more like stand up, you like you understand the actual value and art of it. And yet you slash I am the one being like, nope, it doesn't count unless it's money. Mm. Like how how backwards that is. And I'm just laughing when you talk about like, oh, yeah, I always give a caveat when it comes up. It's like. I do, of, of course I do the same thing. I think I was ashamed to tell people I was an actor because like, I wasn't in a big movie. I wasn't get, I wasn't making my living off of it. Yeah. And to give that caveat, it's like, who benefits from that? No, it's not, there's no like stand-up police who like benefits from it's you so selling yourself short or for you, like who needs you to do that? Nobody needs you to do that. But uh, I do get it. Yeah, that's so true. Like, is the person on the receiving end of that comment like like thinking as much about it as you are it just makes them more uncomfortable they're just like so you're not or like tell me a joke (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite joke (laughs) when that happens I'm like okay actually I am a comedian and I'm better than this and I'm gonna leave (laughs) (laughs) you actually just convinced me that I'm a comedian thank you (laughs) (laughs) okay so I want to kind of like wrap up to where you're at now what you're doing Mm -hmm. now in terms of like balancing career and the stability that like maybe part of you seeks and then still having an outlet for your passions and where you see that going um moving forward too like I'm curious if you are really happy with the current balance or if you see it evolving into something different over time and just like how you think about blending together all that you've learned over this process and this like peaking journey of like getting to the point where that you're at now, which seems like, you know, a relatively healthy balanced point, but will it, does it actually feel that way? Will it stay that way? Will it last? No, it won't fucking last. Nothing lasts. Everything dies. Everything dies. I don't know. Everything (laughs) dies. Everything ends. Um, I say that laughing, but it's just true. And I feel like for me, uh, the name of the game now is balance, like you said. And my mantra these days is diversified fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Like I used to get, I think I used to build my purpose around being an actor, um, probably my boyfriend and my family. And then I lost two of the three. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's maybe dark, but it's, to me, it's just a fact. It doesn't feel dark to me. It feels um, silly to just like not build, like structure my life around that. So now, um, yeah, I like get a lot of fulfillment from having uh, a paycheck in my day job. Um, I explored that. I really wanted to make it my career when I went to tech and I explored you know, I was doing coding and then I was like, eh, that's not the thing I want to do forever. So then I got more into like software design and I was like, eh, okay, but like not everything. And then I explored like motion graphics and animation and maybe strategy or maybe branding. And then I did like maybe five or six in some surface level way. And I was like, yeah, I just don't think that this is going to be 
the thing that brings me like creative fulfillment. Um, it's going to be outside my job. And um, a big win for me just in the past couple of months is that I cut down my tech job hours to 30 hours a week. Mm. So I do, uh, and I adjusted to, I do like a three day work schedule. I do three 10 hour days and then I have four. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And I took a pay cut. Like I, I cut my hours to 75% and I cut my money to 75% and it's so worth it. Um, and I spend the rest of my time working on interior design projects for clients or, um, YouTube videos for my fucking self. And, um, it's, I mean, I do still ultimately want to be able to cut down my tech hours more, but for right now, I need that stability and income and structure, like even just the structure of the work, the structure of coding itself, of having like finite answers that like are not nebulous, but are definite. Um, that's like very comforting. And then I can go into the rest of the days of the week and have a creative project that the answer can be anything. And it's up to me. And I, you know, whatever, there's no one telling me I've done a job correctly or not. It's all very organic there. It's, it's nice to switch back to the tech work. That is so interesting because I often talk about how I'm craving structure mm -hmm. in my time off right now. And the way I've mostly thought about it or like defined structure has been basically schedule like mm -hmm. right now with all the time in the world to do whatever I fill my days with like I end up almost like getting less done or feeling less productive and motivated and it's fine to not be productive all the time and that's something I have to constantly repeat to myself but at the same time like in order to be fulfilled by the podcast by my relationships by like the other things that fill my life like I need some structure to like fit them all into and hold me accountable to like spending that amount of time per week on it. Not that much more, not that much less. And like something that I've been craving from a job is just simply like, give me something to do nine to five. And then that way I know that like, I have to get my podcast stuff done on Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings or something. And I have to do my like socializing on like this day and this day and I have to do my workouts at these times and like it just helps you like build something around it does but it's it definitely interesting does. that you talk about like the nature of coding too being more like structured and finite like that's actually something I'm going to think more about like do I need that because I think any corporate job is a little more structured and finite in the nature of the work but coding is especially that way as compared with like, I was doing strategy consulting, which is a little more fluffy. Right. Um, like that to me would be so much more taxing because that's a difficult skill for me. Mm. And so that would not like feel like almost the mental break that I would, I would need. Obviously it's completely personal, but yeah, like strategy to me is so difficult that, um, yeah, it wouldn't give me that, like the, the structure break, I guess. Well, yeah. The ability to like close it at the end of the day and remove yourself. Know when it's done. Know when you got the and answer. And know when it's That's done. Tough. Yeah. Tough yeah. Um, okay. I want to keep talking to you forever, but this has been great. And I'm going to start bothering you and texting you with yeah. just like my life questions now, because yeah. I feel like there's so much overlap in what we talked about and like what I have 
so much been through and what I am currently going through. And I can only imagine how that will like continue to shape. So anyway, this is the best. This has been so much fun. You're such a freaking charm. Like (laughs) it's true. It's true. It's undeniable. And it's like, you know, when you see someone doing something and it's, uh, I feel like it's easier to see it when you are, when you do have some distance, like the distance that you and I have had to see you doing the podcast and being like, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. It makes sense that you're doing that. And it makes sense that it works and not that it'll be the only thing you do. Like, I want to say this is what you're meant to do, but also there's like a million other things that will come as well, but like more of this, cause it, it just makes sense for you. And it's very, um, it's like warm to see. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Peking Boo Fam. If you want more Peking, then you can go on Instagram at Peking Podcast. You can also go to my website, pekingpodcast.com. You can email me at pekingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you could follow me, Jess DeBakey, at Jay-Z DeBakey on Instagram. I'd also love to shout out Caroline's handles because she is a little bit of an internet personality herself. So if you'd like to follow her, at The Good Sitter on Instagram or youtube.com slash Caroline Winkler Angelica. That's where you can find her hilarious and really helpful, interesting, insightful, creative videos about interior design and DIYs and just, it's a delight. Check it out and talk to you next time. Can you hear me fine from here? Yeah, very beautiful. Wow, thank you. (laughs) Wow. Wow. We, I feel like we both have great voices for this. Like this is going to be, if nobody listens, I know that you do. I know that. No, I know. I know that you do.